Welcome to the Flourishing at School podcast. I'm Tamara Lechner. Each week, my co-host Jason Van Shee and I bring you the best practitioners, academics, and everything in between in order to inform best practice in whole school mental health. This week, we are in part two of a two-episode series with Dr. Helen Kelly. So if you didn't listen last week, I encourage you to jump back and listen to that one first. We are delighted to bring you part two. And just as a note, this episode originally aired on the Psych Health and Safety podcast, which is co-hosted by Joelle. So you're going to hear a different voice. Jason and Joelle will be hosting. Let's get started. From Flourish DX School, this is the Flourishing at School podcast. With mental health becoming a global priority, we are your partner for creating schools where students, teachers, and school leaders feel good and function well, becoming the best versions of themselves and contributing to a flourishing world. So Helen, you're also writing a book on school leader well-being. Um, so how, before getting into your book, how is principal well-being in general? Yeah, pretty poor. Um, There's more data on this, as you alluded to earlier, Um, you know, both from the UK and from um, Australia, um, New Zealand, um, the great work that Phil Riley and his team have been doing. Um, They also did some work in in Ireland back in 2015. I'm not, that was just a one off. I'm not sure why they haven't done that since. Um, but what we know is that um, from UK data, we know that the well-being of um, head teachers, as we call them in the UK, um, the levels of well-being are considerably lower than those in, in the general population. Um, and what Phil Riley's team found um, in Australia was that uh, levels of burnout of school principals are about 1.7, um, the level of uh, the general workforce. Yeah, so almost so, double. Yeah, almost double. Yeah, so uh, so yeah, pretty poor. I think is a, a kind of simple answer to that. Yeah, very poor by the sounds. Yeah, <laughs> very. Uh, what would you say are some of the main psychosocial factors that are relevant for school principals? Well, you know, if we use the Maslach and Leiter kind of model of the six areas of work life, I think that's a good model to use. Um, We know that for school principals, there are two areas of work life that are most closely associated with burnout. The first one, number one, is community. And the second one, number two, is workload. So community, there are, you know, a couple of areas there that I think are the most significant. The first one, and I think this is the thing that shocks people the most, they, the, the average person who's never been a school principal doesn't understand this, is the relationships with adults, particularly the relationships with teachers and parents, the research shows, are incredibly demanding. Schools are what I called in my, um, my, own, rec- my own thesis, emotional arenas. Um, they are highly emotional places. And uh, one researcher, um, Megan Crawford, said that school leaders are conduits through which all the emotions in schools flow. So basically, you're dealing with highly emotional interactions on a daily basis with teachers and parents. And that is incredibly draining. And school leaders are not 
trained in how to deal with these kinds of issues. When they first come into school leadership, they're quite shocked that this is, this takes up such a big part of their day and that this is so impactful on their mental health. My GP in Hong Kong, when um, it was, you know, realized I, I was burnt out, said to me, I'm, you know, I have, I get so many school leaders in here and I don't really understand why, because I've always thought how lovely it would be to work with healthy children. And I said, well, to be honest with you, my job doesn't really involve working with children. I work with 120 adult, you know, adult teachers and hundreds of parents who are all highly emotional. And she was really quite shocked. It was such a small part of my job is actually interacting with students. So I think that that's one part of the community component. The second part of the community component is about isolation. So school leadership is very isolating and it's very hard for school leaders, whether they be principals or vice principals or others in senior leadership roles, to have peers in the workplace that they can trust and confide in and receive support from. So we get this structural isolation where unless you're lucky enough to work in a big school with a large leadership team, which I have been lucky enough to do, you, you know, head teachers or principals in a small school, they might be the only one and they've got no one else to talk to. And even if you do have a large leadership team, the person who's at the top, that would be the principal or the head teacher, will still often find it hard to seek support and confide in their vice principals and so on. So it becomes very, very isolating. What I've also found in my research on international schools is because principals are living away from their support networks, you know, in overseas countries, there's often also a huge component of personal loneliness as well as professional loneliness. And, you know, we all know the impact that loneliness has on our mental and physical health. So I think that's the, that's the component um, relating to community. The other component relates mostly to workload. And I think also most people don't understand just how much the work of the school principal has changed over the last half a century. The role of schools has changed considerably and the expectations placed on schools has just grown exponentially. And what began as somebody who was initially a building manager or a lead teacher or an administrator, these people now have this massive role um, that is, if you imagine a CEO of a company and all the things that they're responsible for, but they're not just responsible for overseeing all of those areas, they're responsible for physically doing them. That's what you have in schools. Um, and as a result of the intensification of the role, um, you know, the massive growth in, in expectations, um, what we know from the research is that school leaders work very long hours considerably longer than the OECD average. Um, many school leaders work over 60 hours a week in school. Their work is very fast paced and their day is regularly interrupted and unpredictable. And these are all factors connected to burnout. What we also know is because of the growth of technology, school leaders don't have the opportunity to switch off 
at weekends or in the evenings or even in the holidays as much as people think they do. So WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger and all of these things mean that they're just constantly on all the time. You know, when I was a principal, um, I had a team. I was lucky, you know, I worked in a big school. And so we had to agree that, you know, one, one night a week, one of us was putting the phone in the drawer at 6.30 and not touching it. And someone else was going to pick up the messages because the messages, the dings will just keep coming through all evening. Um, and so I think, you know, those are the main um, psychosocial factors that impact on school leader burnout. Yeah, the um, I yeah, I I think the emotional work involved there um is probably something that most people wouldn't really think about. You know, if you think you think about a school leader and you think about more of the administrative components of actually keeping a school operational and the financial aspects of it, and you know, managing enrolments and all of those types of things. But um, yeah, when you say it, it is actually a lot of that um and that deep emotional work as well where you do you are dealing with the problems that your staff are bringing to you and you're dealing with parents who are yeah all, all, all sorts of interesting parents I'm sure um, principals deal with and you know um, families who are going through traumatic experiences and you know grief and and all of those types of things that um, that happen as well so um, yeah I think that that's that's definitely an area that probably most people wouldn't really think about that that level of deep emotional work that um that school leaders yeah. and principals need to do i mean as far as teachers are concerned as well it isn't just teachers bringing problems it's teachers creating problems so you know there's a lot of research going back to the early 90s to show that um for, for teachers their professional and personal identity is much more closely interlinked than most professions so when you're when you're bringing educational reform into school and you're asking teachers to do their jobs differently you're not just um you you might not just be interpreted as criticizing them professionally but you can be interpreted as attacking them personally um and so you have a highly sensitive workforce you know let's face it in order to do the work that they do especially in primary schools with the youngest kids, you have to be a special kind of person who wears their emotions pretty close to the surface. And as a consequence, that makes teachers very challenging to, you know, to work with. Um, but it couldn't be any other way. But I think most people don't understand that. And I know so many of people have said to me in the past, oh, you know, my husband or my wife or my brother has said to me, if people in my workplace carried on the way your teachers do, nobody would stand for it. It's just ridiculous. Um, but schools are very, very unique environments, emotional arenas, um, where you have to be very careful in the way that you handle your interactions with individuals and you know on the whole school principals are not trained for that and what happens as we know from our knowledge of psychology is that when you have an emotional interaction with an individual you ruminate over it and so you take it home with you and you can't switch off because you're thinking about what was said and how it was said and what will you do about it and if that happens to you every day and my own research shows that there's 
you know, probably 30% of school leaders have some kind of emotional interaction of this kind on a daily basis or more frequently than daily, then you, you know, you're, you're constantly in a loop of anxiety, rumination over these emotional encounters that you've had, which makes it hard. It's, it's an interesting one because we've had, I think, a similar um, issue brought up, um, you know, when we've had people on talking about the legal profession that, um, you know, again, psychologists are trained in how to actually um, sort of self-reflect on their own um, emotions following an encounter or, a, you know, being told about something traumatic or whatever that might be. And as part of our professional training, we actually have a toolkit of how to deal with that. Now, how well we access that toolkit and, and, and use it is, you know, variable, um, but that is actually just a necessary part of our training to, to work in that context. And, um, you know, lawyers don't have that training. And so for them, as, as with teachers, you know, they're sort of confronted with this um, barrage of emotional responses that they just don't know what to do with or, or, or how to do it. So um, that's an interesting theme coming through there. Yeah, you know, and they, and they tend to, what happens when this goes wrong is that you, you beat yourself up because you think you're failing in leadership. And once you've been doing it for a while, you realise that all school leaders go through this. There's a piece of research um, that talks about wounding school leaders, the woundings that they experience. And you have to learn how to heal those wounds quickly otherwise you know you're, you're constantly being wounded and taking this all of this too personally and thinking it's your fault when what you have to do is go into a corner lick your wounds heal your wounds and bounce back um and providing school leaders with support and tools to enable them to do that more quickly is you know that's just not that's just not available on the whole Mm. Um, so are there differences in the, the main psychosocial factors between school leaders and teachers in terms of what, what, what are the main issues for them? Yeah, uh, yes and no. The research shows that the two main factors are the same. They are community and workload, but they're switched around so that for teachers, it's more to do with workload and then community comes second. But also there's a third area of work life for teachers, which is control. So a lot of issues for teachers around lack of autonomy over their work, you know, constant educational reform and change in schools, also top-down leadership approaches, teachers not being involved with the direction of the school, they're, you know, being insufficient um, focus upon providing shared values and shared vision and mission so that there's a sense of belonging um, and more a feeling that this is something that's being done to us by leadership or by government. So we, we see that less with school leaders because obviously school leaders have a lot more control over their workplace um, in some ways, although the unpredictability of their days, you know, does impact on their control. So yes, similar in some ways, but also the control factor is different. Yeah, and that's interesting because we know that, um, you know, autonomy can be a, um, a sort of buffering factor for where, where workload is high. If you've also got high autonomy, then, you know, it's, it's less problematic um, than if, yeah, if you've got high workload and low autonomy. So that's a, um, 
a, a yeah, bit absolutely. of a killer combination for, for teachers to be um, dealing it is. with. It is. And what you do have with teachers, though, is they have that supportive community. Mm. So you have that collegial peer relationship, which is really important. And actually, I kind of poo-pooed this when I first came across it, but I understand it a lot more now that schools are more successful where teachers have relationships that are akin to close friendships or familial relationships rather than just professional relationships. Um, and, you know, I thought that that was highly unprofessional when I first came across that, but I understand it better now. And that's something that school leaders just on the whole don't have access, you know, generally don't have access to, but teachers do, which, you know, does help to mitigate against the impact of the other factors that make them vulnerable to burnout. Yeah, that's interesting. And that, I guess, for a, for a school leader is something that they can facilitate among their teaching staff as well as to actually, you know, create that environment of collegiality and where those types of relationships are actually fostered and encouraged. Absolutely. And so much of the work that I'm doing with schools at the moment is around that. You know, whilst there are schools that just want to have a tick box, you know, um, workshop, um, the schools that I choose to work with on the whole are those that want to develop this positive school culture that I was referring to earlier. So that starts off with developing a positive workplace culture and that can then be, you know, pushed out into the student body. Um, and so, yes, developing those collegial relationships, respectful, civil, you know, Michael Leiter was talking about civility. I love that work, um, creating that sense of belonging. Um, it, 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 I think that's the best work. That's the most important work and uh, the most impactful. Mm. So you said that um, community followed by workload are the two biggest psychosocial hazards for school leaders. Um, yeah. yeah. What are your general recommendations to school leaders and to deal with some of these psychosocial factors in their role? Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, what we have to do is educate. I think that we need to kind of change thinking. You know, we've discussed this a little bit already. So school communities, whether that be governance, parents, school leaders, teachers, whoever, need to understand how important school leader well-being is to the success of the school because if we don't start with that then we've got no foundation to build upon we've got no intention or motivation so i think educating the school community to understand how the well-being of the school leader is connected to the success of the school i think is probably the first thing and then I think probably the best thing schools can do because it impacts the well-being of both leaders and teachers is to focus upon developing a positive workplace culture, you know. Um, but then there are a lot of um, other things that can be done. Um, you know, those are community, but that's a community based thing, mostly from a workload perspective, um, you know, looking at ways to disperse leadership um more widely across the organization um developing collaborative cultures professional cultures um you know has all kinds of benefits it reduces the workload of school leaders but it has benefits for others who are being empowered so it's a win-win situation um i think that there's a lot of stuff around that and then providing support 
outside of school because because leaders can't receive it in school so making sure that they have access to programs like mentoring coaching networking i think is absolutely crucial um lots of work around that um i think as well there's a chapter in my book um which is about you know this is more moving towards the self-care approach but it's helping school leaders to understand to be self-aware and reflect upon themselves and the way that they 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 carry out their leadership practice to understand their their psychological drivers and what the pitfalls might be of you know being a perfectionist or you know self-sabotage behaviors that kind of thing so you know we're going down more towards this kind of self-care end there but i think that you know there are lots of things um that schools can do um i think we have to start though with you know where we started at the beginning of this conversation with schools understanding that there is no one size fits all approach for well-being in the workplace and so what they need to do is find out what the needs of their leaders are and what most schools don't have is a well-crafted um workplace well-being survey that's tailored to the needs of school leaders and i think that that's an important starting point because there's no point going down the path of all these interventions that i've just outlined whether they be primary or secondary interventions without really knowing what are the issues in our school and of course there you know i'm sure you come across this in your work there are issues of trust there so in order to encourage school leaders to be honest about the issues there needs to be a trusting environment um, and that can be problematic for some schools so i think you know finding out what the issues are developing a strategic approach organizational interventions that improve the quality of the workplace for everyone um, and then focus specifically on trying to disperse leadership and trying to provide support um for leaders also training you know providing them with the training so that they have the skills and the, the the kind of attitudes that they need to be able to do the understandings that they need to be able to do their job well so we're not just talking about the the skills that you would think of with school leadership being a leader you know leading learning curriculum and those things um, but training school leaders in those emotional factors, how to, you know, deal with difficult people, how to um, have successful interpersonal relationships. That there's very, you know, Phil Riley's doing some great work on that at the moment in Australia, but that kind of um, training isn't available in the rest of the world. It's just not there. You know, so well, you could argue yeah. a lot of it's gone digital over the pandemic. So um, a lot of it should be accessible. But what I'm hearing there, Helen, is is um, probably a role for the principals themselves, given their high levels of autonomy, um, and often, you know, they're the top of the chain. It's not a like how we normally would address psychosocial hazards. In that, you know, it's the employer's responsibility primarily to deal with them, to identify them, and deal with them. Um, for the school leader, uh, they need to recognise what the factors are and, and how to address them. And like you say, it starts with education. Um, 
But I also like that idea about that peer support. So setting up a network of other school leaders uh, where you can learn from each other's experiences. And particularly if, you know, you're new into school leadership, you know, being able to be partnered with a mentor or someone who's been there and been done it successfully for a while with healthy practices, I think is really important. Um, the second responsibility there is probably with the governance of the school. Um, yeah. the school school boards the school boards should be going well what are we doing to protect you know the school board has one um, employee really that's the CEO or the, uh, the the head the head teacher um, what are we doing to make sure that this person's job is suitable for them and, and the demands are suitable and what are we doing to empower that person and educate them on you know crafting the role so it doesn't end up hurting them or harming their health absolutely and you know one of the things that I find quite frustrating is that virtually none of my work is with governance and really that's where the work needs to come because you can't expect school leaders to, um, to be very good at putting themselves first and to spend money and take time off to attend to their own needs when there are so many other needs in school. What that needs to be driven by their supervisors, whoever they are, and you know the set the the, the 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 kind of terminology is different wherever you work in the world, but school leader, principal, supervisors need to be the individuals that are driving that. Yet, very very little of my work is with governance, and those are the people that need to be listening and need to be trained and need to be involved, and government, of course. Yeah, because government often is the employer when you look at the um, the government schools. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, government can can lead the way, but individual in the UK, we have a system obviously where there's government, but each school does have a, a board of governors mm. and they are responsible for, as you said, for the head teacher um, and also for overseeing the budget and for the strategic plan. And so these um, interventions that need to come from goals that are embedded in the strategic plan or the school improvement plan. Um, so they need to come from, you know, from the top. Um, if we just wait for school leaders to do this for themselves, then progress is gonna be much slower. And, you know, most of the work that I'm doing with, with schools that get it are with groups of schools that are managed by um independent boards that are responsible for five ten fifteen schools and they take a big picture approach much much more like the corporate world mm. and so i you know i think this is where a lot of the role models will come from that we've yeah, talking with the, i guess with a lot of the international schools you work with you know um the there's consortiums that own yeah. groups of international schools that come from other parts of business, right? They're in other industries as well. So they'd bring yeah, that, some of that knowledge. That's become much, much more popular over the last 10 to 15 years. When I first went into international schools, that didn't really exist. And now we have, especially these um, schools that started in the UK, you know, as independent schools have now developed huge groups, of consortiums, um with schools in multiple locations across asia and the middle east um and a lot of the best work i think is coming from them um and they have bigger budgets and they also have people working within their organization who've come from the corporate world mm. have been working in this for 20 years or more and to them it's kind of obvious whereas in schools we're very behind in in our thinking 
you know, very behind. It's very, yeah. very, very 20th century. Um, so I guess just circling back to workload and you've sort of talked to some of this um, a little bit already, but recognising that it is, uh, you know, sort of top two risk factor for both school leaders and teachers. Um, are there some sort of key reasons why that high workload is consistently there? Yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, the expectations placed on schools have completely transformed over the last 50 years. And that means that the work of school leaders and the work of teachers has transformed. So schools are no longer places where just learning takes place. Um, you know, from a political perspective, schools are now the primary vehicle for um, addressing social disadvantage. Um, you know, even though governments are consistently implementing policies that, you know, perpetuate inequality, they expect schools to address this. And that brings a lot of pressures. Um, you know, what we also have is an increasing accountability culture where as schools have been given greater autonomy, what's called school-based management since the 1970s, in order to prove to government that they're doing a good job, they have to jump through a whole bunch of accountability hoops. And that brings a lot of paperwork and administration and takes teachers and leaders away from their work in the classroom. You know, schools are also no longer, they're multiple service providers, you know, that they provide before and after school care, um, and meals, um, they're providing uh, alongside um, other external agencies, they're providing a whole range of therapies, you know, speech and language therapy, occupational therapy, play therapy, mental health services, welfare services, child protection. We've also had a huge proliferation in recent years of students with special educational needs and mental health needs. Um, which and the school is really the focus for addressing those. So that's also happened. Um, we have increasing issues of funding around schools, which means we have staffing cuts um, with teachers, teaching assistants, support staff, um, class sizes creeping up. So there's just more work to do with less people to do the work. Um, we could probably do a 90 minute podcast just on this. You know, there are multiple and complex factors, many of them political, um, that having caused the workload of those in schools to increase considerably over the last several decades. Um, and that's just a kind of snapshot, really, of some of my thoughts around the issue. Yeah. Um, have you seen any schools come up with sort of novel approaches to address some of these workload issues? Yeah, this is interesting to see what schools do. I came across a school the other day, actually, in London, who has a no marking policy. So teachers don't do any marking. Um, I've also seen quite a lot of schools. It's becoming more popular now for, their, for teachers to have a, for the kids to have a four and a half day week. So they would go home, let's say, for example, early on Friday at one o'clock or 12.30, and then teachers have half a day for planning and collaboration. Um, in Europe, I'm not sure if you know this, but in Europe, in the state school system, it's much, much more common for teachers to only come into school to teach their lessons. 
and they stay at home for the rest of the day to plan and mark you know lessons and mark student work and then they have other individuals on site who are responsible for the pastoral care so teachers are responsible for learning and someone else is responsible for the pastoral care so you know those are some ways with teachers um, with school leaders there's a growing interest in shared leadership models um, I mean co-principalships go back to the 70s um, but there's a growing interest in co-principalships co-headships um, it's still thought of as being pretty out there and progressive. Um, also, delivery, de um, developing collaborative cultures, which I've already mentioned, so that we're dispersing leadership and um, expanding senior leadership teams has become very popular, you know, obviously with schools that can afford it. So you're taking on new roles like director of learning or director of admissions or director of operations so that some of those whether they be academic roles or non-academic roles that the the school leader is expected to be responsible for are being done by someone else um, and we're seeing that increasingly in independent schools um, and in international schools big senior big big slts much more like what you find in the corporate world um, so those are some of the ways that um, schools you know more novel ways that schools are dealing with these issues um coaching has become very big in schools it's not always very successful uh peer coaching models with teachers um limited success i would say um professional coaching for school leaders is becoming more popular and there's some really there's becoming a real foundation of evidence now to show the impact on well-being for school principals and head teachers of coaching with a professional coach and so that's becoming more popular so yeah those are some of the things that are happening out there yeah i can see how the um the co-principal or the coach model would help with some of that um sort of the isolation um issues that um that the school principals or leaders deal with absolutely yeah, I was um, involved in school governance for about six years, and uh, I really liked the model that we had at the school. We had two primary schools and a secondary, so we had a head of secondary, two head of well, you know principals for the primary schools, and then we had a CEO. And the CEO's yeah. main responsibility was make sure that the ship runs, uh, whereas the principals were in charge of curriculum, right? Because that's yeah. you know in their background. Uh, and then they, we had like a director of finance as well who'd take care of all the enrollments and financial stuff so um yeah get get principals to all you know head teachers to do what they do and that is you know focus on good curriculum um and get a business manager <laughs> to manage the business of, of the school yeah, uh, i thought that was much better use of skill sets that's very similar to the model that you will see in most large international schools although sometimes they do have a director of learning or a director of curriculum who also oversees that aspect of things um, just because if, you know, a school of two or 3,000 students um, where learning, where students are going from age three up to age 18, it's probably unrealistic to expect one head teacher to be, a, to be an expert in learning across that whole age range. But it's, that's definitely much more the model that you see in independent schools, because a lot of public schools, state schools, 
um, just quite simply don't have the financial resources mm. to enable that to happen. Um, you know, although there's a lot of good research to show that a um, director of finance or a business manager actually makes their makes their money back in the first three mm. years, you know, so there is data out there to help us. Um, I think a director of development, which is fund what they're called fundraising in schools now, um, they're definitely earning their salaries plus in you know yep. in raising so that you know there's there, there, there's some kind of bottom line factors there that schools can latch onto to see that actually um, it's in the long run it's probably going to cost them less. Yeah, big, big business managers, you know, they easily can make their money back in a school. There can be so much waste um, within a school financially. Um, so if you have someone who's got good controls over that, then, um, you know, easily they can make their money back. I would be surprised if they didn't do it in the first year. <laughs> but yeah. um, it, importantly, it takes that load off, say, a head teacher who maybe comes from more of an education background and hasn't got the business management. I mean, you know, we're talking about schools, not with like, you know, a million dollar, $2 million budgets. You know, a lot of these have $10 million plus budgets, these uh, independent schools, not even really large ones. You know, it's a medium sized kind of school. So you've got a, you know, someone who's kind of graduated from a teacher into school leadership. And now all of a sudden they've got to manage a $10 million budget. It's, um, you know, a pretty significant jump. Absolutely. You know, what we're seeing in state schools where there's less money to go around for these roles, um, are schools sharing a business manager, for example. Yeah. Um, in the UK, you know, we've moved over to this academy system and we're grouping schools together much more now. And so we're able to kind of share resources among schools and, you know, you've got economies of scale there. So a lot more schools now do have access to somebody who supports them with the finance but there are, you know, many, many other roles, um, and some of the big, biggest schools um, have huge SLTs with all kinds of roles. Um, and then, of course, the problem of the uh, the head teacher is then to to manage all of these people within the SLT and to manage this huge leadership team, which comes with its own challenges. <laughs> yeah, and that's, I guess, where um, you know we're coaching. Uh, would really benefit right bringing in external kind of viewpoints and the chance for reflection uh, as well on what practices are working and what aren't and other professional development opportunities that the the head teacher or principal might need uh, to be able to meet the demands of the role um yeah look H helen it's been a, a really fascinating discussion as as i said early on i don't think we could have asked for a much better person to really explore this topic with given your background um, actually, what, one question we always ask uh, all of our guests, which I'm interested to hear from you is, you know, looking into the future, what would your hopes be for the future of workplace mental health? Yeah, well, I mean, we've alluded to it a little bit already, haven't we? I mean, what we want is a, what I hope to see in my lifetime is uh, a situation where mental health in schools is viewed in the same way, you know, the, the, the risks are viewed in the same way as the risks of health, physical health and safety. Um, and that there's a legislative framework to address this, to, um, you know, a stick as well as a carrot, if you like, um, to, to force schools, to force employers generally to take these risks more seriously. Because, you know, this isn't just about the workplace. This is about society, isn't it? You know, um, to be a happy and functioning and successful society. We need people who can sustain a good work-life balance so they have time to spend with their families, they can experience happiness and joy on a regular basis, 
they can be uh, they can realize their potential rather than just being exhausted and unwell um and you know that's the kind of utopia i guess um, yeah and then hopefully get the contagion effect like you say for school teacher well-being and student well-being as well by having the head healthy and, and well absolutely yeah um I, i'm not sure whether it's realistic to think we'll see that in my lifetime i'm in my late 50s now um but it would be nice to you know it would be nice to think that 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 um, we would have some kind of legislative framework in place. I think that's what I would hope for the most. Yeah, so we might be closer in Australia than what you are in, in the UK um, to that. But uh, yeah, look, we, we've seen schools move very quickly when they've had to, right? When the whole business model of schools was threatened because of a pandemic, they worked out how to do it remotely. And that was something that would never have been considered a possibility before the pandemic. Um, so, you know, when someone goes, well, enough's enough, you know, we can't have all these teachers burning out and becoming unwell and school teachers just uh, school heads, you know, you know, really suffering really badly with their mental health. Yeah, surely someone's going to call enough's enough and we need really big change, not just incremental change. We need a, a really large change with how we consider well-being. That, that needs to come from government, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, well, hopefully the changes in Australia will uh, kind of spearhead things and get the attention of <laughs> other governments around the world as well. Mm. Hope so. So, Helen, the other question that we ask all of our guests is, do you have any words of advice for listeners who want to work in this field of um, psychological health and safety? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that it's very important work and it's very rewarding work, but I think that you have to know your limitations and I think that you have to work very hard um, at study and gaining knowledge and experience to make sure that you're not, um, you know, offering services that you're not qualified or experienced enough to offer. So, you know, I think it's about taking it seriously and getting qualified and knowing your stuff. And, you know, I know quite a lot, um, a lot of people contact me, hundreds and hundreds of people contact me, you know, in an average month. Um, to share their stories. And there are a lot of school principals and head teachers now who are requalifying as psychologists and counsellors and professional coaches to support school leaders in their work. And, you know, I really admire and respect them. And um, what we need are um, people with the right skills and qualifications and knowledge base. Um, so that would be my advice to people is, is you know, make sure that you've got those qualifications and skills and knowledge base in place I think that's important yeah and um excellent advice to uh, know know what your limits are and um you know what's outside of your um the, the scope of your expertise absolutely you know I have people come to me to ask for coaching and you know I'll coach people I was a school leader but I'm not a professional coach and I'm not qualified to coach people um and to I wouldn't charge money for that you know, so I think we need to know what our limitations are and be fair to people who, who when they approach us, are highly needy and vulnerable. And we need to make sure that we protect them rather than um, take advantage of that. Yeah, and there's an element of knowing, um, have, I guess, having a, um, a black book of referrals, I guess. So knowing, you know, what's outside of my scope and who do I know in my network who can actually do this so that I can refer on when I need to. Absolutely. And, you know, when you've been doing this, even if it's just for a couple of years, you do build up a lot of knowledge of what's out there and um, who people are saying good things about and uh, 
able to point people in the right direction. Yeah, well, Helen, it has been a fantastic uh, conversation with you. Um, where can listeners find out more about your work? Yeah, they can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I hang out there a lot. Um, they can go to my website, The Positive Principle, which is drdrhelenkelly.com. Um, those are the two places that you'll find me mostly. Um, they can also find me on Facebook, The Positive Principle. I've kind of given up Twitter for now. <laughs> I went through a big Twitter phase, but um, LinkedIn's grown a lot over the last few years, and I find it a very helpful kind of um, platform. Um, so, yeah. Um, or you can go onto my website and you'll, there'll be a contact form there and an email address. And I really love hearing from people. So by all means, reach out to me. Um, let me know what's happening with you. Yeah, we'll definitely put a couple of your links up on the uh, show notes when we publish the podcast as well, particularly um, to the article that this, this podcast episode will probably be named after because <laughs> it's such a, such a catchy title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can um, take credit as I said at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> no, great. Now, Helen, it's been fantastic. So thank you so much. Um, but listeners, that brings us to the end of the episode. So remember, we do video these things when we chat with our great guests. So you'll be able to catch the video if you like on the Flourish DX YouTube page. Uh, you'll also see some snippets coming out over the coming week on the Flourish DX LinkedIn page. Uh, like Helen, Joel and I probably frequent LinkedIn probably a little bit too much, but that's how we find great people like Helen. It is it is great to uh, find people who are talking and, and kind of leading the discussion in this area. So if you want to continue the conversation, uh, LinkedIn is a great place to do that with Joel and myself and by Helen as well, by the sounds of it. But that brings us to the end. We'll catch you next episode. That brings us to the end of today's episode of the Flourishing at School podcast. You can watch the video if that's your preference, on the Flourish DX YouTube channel. We share the best bits with our connections via LinkedIn. So please connect with Jason and I there. And that's it for today. We'll catch you on the next episode. Until then, keep flourishing at school and in life. You've been listening to the Flourishing at School podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on whole school mental health, follow Flourish DX School on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Flourishing at School podcast at www.flourishingatschool.com.